Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. It's Lainey, Chris, and Virginia back for another episode. And we did a really great episode on our door to door Facebook Live, and we thought the love just has to continue. So we're going to keep talking about this book, Moonflower Murders by Anthony Horowitz. Probably, uh, personally, one of my favorite door-to-doors we've done. I don't know about you guys. Oh, my God. I think it's great. I think, uh, and the response from librarians was amazing. And there was even somebody who said, you know, in the chats, it's the best one we've ever done. It's a pretty special experience uh, where genius gets tossed around a lot. But that was one of those moments talking to Anthony really just kind of hit me wow he is a genius he is a genius person yeah just one of the best mystery authors who's ever done it so yeah it was a very special experience a lot of fun too yeah he i mean the enthusiasm he brings you know to the it was just uh you know he was he was just you know he was just like overflowing with but earnest earnest enthusiasm you know just so excited to talk about not just his book but you know just writing in general writing and reading and books and all the people that he loves to read and it was just so cool mm-hmm. and this, also libraries so yeah never short on beautiful things to say about libraries i i told him that i remember this video he made for us and i bring it up all the time because it really stuck with me I, you know we do author videos a lot when we go to conferences to kind of show, you know, when we're not doing Zoom all the time, a little face-to-face with librarians. But his video was a few, recorded a few years ago, and I think about it all the time. He's just, yeah, he is exuberant. You just want to listen to him and everything he has to say. Yeah. It was like a love letter to librarians, I thought, and, and in the most um, earnest way, you know, when he talks about his childhood, which didn't sound so swift. You know, and he had a tough time there, but he talks about the safe haven that was not only the library, but the librarians. Oh, my God. It was so sweet. I mean, we all, as Chris said, we all got a little dewy-eyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But let's hear from Anthony a little bit about why he wrote the book and why he decided to set it in this particular moment. When I wrote Magpie Murders, which was about four years ago now, I think, I always thought it was a one-off. It was an idea I'd had a long, long time ago, sort of a, this idea about writing about a murder mystery writer and having a book in a book, you know, two books together, a modern mystery with a golden uh, age detective story buried in its heart. And the result of that was Magpie Murders, which did extremely well, both in, in England, in America. In fact, pretty much all around the world, it did very well. And my publishers then began to put pressure on me to come up with a sequel. But more than that, we've sold the television rights and there's going to be a TV version, our masterpiece theatre, PBS is doing it in America. We start shooting in, I think, February of next year. 
and I began to think, could I play the same tricks that I played in Magpie Murders, the book within a book, the golden age versus the modern mystery, Atticus, Punt, Susan Ryder, all these characters I invented, could I do it a second time? And I thought about it for, I guess, a couple of months, and I suddenly had an idea, you know, I can do it. I can play the same game, but in a different way. And so then I said yes, and the book that followed was Moonflower Murders. In Moonflower Murders, I began in the modern world. Why? Because that's where the book begins. I like to follow the book through. I don't like to begin in the middle of a book and work my way back. The book begins in 2016, 17. I'm not even sure what the year of it is, but sort of now-ish with Susan in Greece. And then I cut back into sort of into the into the world of the Golden Age um, story. But in terms of, of my narrative line, Alan Conway visits a hotel in London. That's what happens. A writer comes to a hotel in England where there has been a murder. He meets various characters in the hotel, the managers, the receptionist, uh, you know, other people there. And he learns that one of them committed this murder. And for reasons that don't become clear at first, he hides their identity, the identity of the killer in his book. So what I did was I went with Alan to the hotel. I met those people. I examined the crime that Alan examined, the murder of a uh, young, uh, 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 the murder of an advertising executive on the night of a wedding. A guest at the hotel is, is, is murdered in a rather horrible way. And then I went into the golden age detective story that Alan Conway wrote as a result of all that, with all the characters that he had met in the second book. And that, that is the fun of it. It is to follow the characters, to keep going forward uh, and not to keep uh, jumping around. I hope that answer makes sense to you, but it's sort of, because sometimes the process is, is to me quite beguiling and baffling, but, that it, but it's forward motion I, is how I would sum it up. I can just listen to him for forever. I mean, honestly, he's so smart and, and so, um, I just love listening to him. That's all there is to it. I could listen to him talk about his own books, other people's books, his characters, what gets him going. It's amazing. You know, he talked a little bit about the whole, you know, the, the, the trying times that we're in in our country and that they're in in, in, in his country and, um, and that we all need escapist reads. He called it The Great Escape, and he's right. Um, but anyway, he had so much, um, so many wonderful things to say about um, libraries and librarians. I mean, it really was a love letter, I think, to, to librarians. And again, um, he just tells these stories about, you know, hearkening back to when he was a kid and it sounded like a tough time and libraries and librarians kind of saved him. They were his um, port in the storm. So here's what he had to say. Let me tell you straight off, as you know very well, librarians are my favorite people in the whole world and the value of librarians is phenomenal. I mean, it, it, librarians were the saving of my life, frankly, because I'm not sure if, I, if on the video I was talking about this, but when I was a kid in a very, very nasty school in North London, a boarding school, um, a, a, a school, a place, this is back in the 60s, a lot of brutality, beatings and bullying and an atmosphere of oppression. I was a slightly fat little kid. I was a very thick and, and uh, backward little kid and I didn't have many friends. And the one safe space in the school, the one place I felt any sort of happiness or comfort was the library. And the only friend I had in the school was the librarian who introduced me to books and, and, and began to 
to feed my interest in trying to not just read comic books and sort of silly books, which is where I began, but to start to get me to read better and better books. And that followed into second, secondary school, 13 to 18, where I was much happier, but nonetheless, the library, the school library, I still remember hours spent there. And libraries have played a huge part in my life. I mean, that's about as heartfelt as you, as you can get. I mean, he's, he's really, um, he means every word he says. And, um, and librarians really um, appreciated, um, you know, you could tell in the comments in the chat room what they were saying was really sweet. Um, but also that, um, you know, they, they have embraced this, this author and um, they made his, um, his two previous books, The Word is Murder and Magpie Murders. Um, they voted and it counted and those books made it onto the library reads list and so did um, so did Moonflower Murders, which was so exciting. Um, and it's, uh, that's now put him into the Library Reads Hall of Fame. They like to keep, uh, you know, they like to keep that. They're very fair. Library Reads is very fair to authors and they don't want to, you know, keep having the same uh, um, recurring authors who write wonderful books, but they want to make sure that um, that list is reflective of, of newer writers as well. And so um, once you've once you've had two books on a library reads list from there on in, you are a hall of famer for any other book of yours that makes it onto the list or is voted by librarians. So, which is really cool. So yeah. So Moonflower Murders puts Anthony into the library reads hall of fame. Dun, da, da, da. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Right he where he excited. belongs. Right yeah. where he belongs for yeah. sure. Yeah. He was excited. That meant a lot to him. Yeah. Um, you feel very energized after anything he says, or I do anyway. And so we just, you know, wanted to put some things together from that Facebook Live. You can go listen to the whole thing on our Facebook page, Library Love Fest, or you can listen on YouTube. So we're not going to play the whole thing, but he just had such great sound bites. So we put a few together for you here. I love the classic mystery because there's a timelessness to it. And of course, some writers approach their characters and they don't age. They're almost stuck in time. But you're writing with modern day sensibilities. What's it like doing that and like approaching an Agatha Christie-esque story through a modern gaze? Well, you know, Chris, I, I have written Ian Fleming books and I've written Sherlock Holmes books. And when I write those books, in order to get the voice right and to get the period right, I have to sort of immerse myself in them. I have to forget the 21st century. You know, I write with a fountain pen anyway. Here it is. Uh, and, um, and, I, and, I, and I have to sort of just forget about technology, forget about politics, forget about my family, and just live the life of a novel. And that is how I do it with these books too. But when it comes to writing the book inside the book, the book written by Alan Conway, which has as its detective this strange German-Greek Jew who is a in the Second World War, who has been in a labor camp, who has seen evil at close quarters. When I write those books, I have to live inside them and just immerse myself into that world, the language of it, the gentility of it, the elegance of it. And above all, Chris, the most important thing for me, the slow pace of it. We live in a world where information, any information, is available in five seconds. Tap it into the keyboard and you're an expert. I love writing about a world where you have to think, where you have to ask questions, where you have to wait for an answer, where, where everything un unfolds itself to you slowly. And that's, that, therefore, is the attitude change that I have to make. It's, it's slowing down. Uh, that's a sort of half answer to an interesting and a bigger question, but, but that's, that's sort of the procedure. Do you feel like you're writing three stories at one time, or does it all just... No, no, no. I think I'm writing 
I'm writing two stories because there's the old story and there's the modern story. And I am sort of not really writing them at the same time. I'm writing them one after the other consecutively. I, you know, I just want to keep hold of my sanity. And I want most of all, the most important thing for me is that a book, especially a complicated double murder mystery like this one, with two sets of murders, two sets of clues and two solutions, has got to be a pleasure to read. I do not want somebody stopping on page 248 and saying, you know, who is this character? Where has he come from? What is his name? What is he doing? Who is he related to? Why is he in this story? I want my reader to know at every moment of the book exactly what is going on. But truth of the matter is, I'm not that smart myself. And I sometimes get very, very confused by murder mysteries that leave me behind, that I don't want to do that to my readers. These books are very complicated to to write, but they mustn't be complicated to read. I think of them a little bit like a watch. That a watch, if you take it to pieces, is massively complicated. It has springs and dials and cogs and wheels and diamonds and goodness knows what else are in there. But telling the time is instant and fast. That's what the book should be like as well. You know, I think that the other, you know, murder mystery right now has had a sort of a spike. The world has been in such a difficult place for so long. You know, you in America have just been through a very grueling election and many, many people have been worried about the future of your country. And to that COVID, in this country, we have Brexit and all that that, that might lead to, you know, we have global warming. I think that right now people are desperate for books as the great escape. I mean, this is the time when reading comes into its own where, you know, you can forget everything that is happening in this world around us just by picking up a yeah. book. One other thing that we should mention is that somebody asked him about different kinds of books that he reads and what does he love. And then he started to talk about books that he thought were, I think he thought that they said, he thought that they were a little under the radar, but he loved them. And librarians kept, were writing in the chat room, like, what was that book? What was that book? And then we ended up putting it into the, uh, into the actual uh, chat. It was a really cool exchange of um, ideas because then he asked what books would be good or somebody asked him one of the librarians asked him what would be uh, what would what readings would he suggest for to, to sort of hook some you know teen teen readers on mysteries I thought that was really interesting and in that he was stumped and so the conversation and the suggestions went back to the librarians so that was very cool to look at we told them write your write them in and they did so that's on the Facebook Live as well in the chat room. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I was looking back at it today, actually, after the event. And like someone said, The Western Game. I'm like, that's a perfect book to suggest for a kid. I remember reading it in middle school um, and being excited about the mystery. So, you know, leave it to librarians to have the perfect book to put in the chat. So you can go read and listen along on Facebook as well for that. It's a good, good point. And go watch the rest of the video. We'll have links below in the show notes. But we thought we would set up a little bit about Moonflower Murders, which is out now. You can get it by reading a little bit. Chris, do you have a section that we could read? Sure do. And just to give you some background, dear listener. So this is the sequel to Magpie Murders. Many of you have read and loved. Uh, and this, again, follows Susan Ryland, who was the star editor for uh, the Atticus Pung series, uh, which was written by the late Alan Conway. Um, and as in the first novel, you know, this is a book within a book. So there's a real life murder that takes place and there are clues within an Alan Conway novel that may point towards the real life murderer. So that's where we are at the end of the previous book. You know, Susan was kind of 
narrowly escaped death. Her career was kind of in shatters. And now she's in Greece running a bed and breakfast. Life's a little crazy. She's not completely satisfied. But little did she expect two strangers to waltz into her hotel, an older couple. And they say that a murder took place at their hotel back in England. Um, a man was arrested, prosecuted. They think the case is shut, but their daughter is convinced that they have the wrong man and that the real life killer can be found by tracing the clues found in, you guessed it, an Atticus pun novel. Um, so I'm going to just read the section where uh, Susan is sitting down with this couple and they're kind of going over some of the peculiar similarities and parallels between the real life case and this novel. So here it begins. He reached into his jacket pocket and took out a paperback. I recognized it at once, the picture on the cover, the typeface, the title. And at that moment, this entire meeting began to make sense. The book was Atticus Pund Takes the Case, number three in the series written by Alan Conway that I had edited and published. I immediately recall that it was largely set in a hotel, but in the county of Devon, not in Suffolk, and in 1953, not the present day. I remembered the launch party at the German embassy in London. Alan had had too much to drink and had insulted the ambassador. Alan knew about the murder, I asked. Oh yes, he came to the hotel and stayed a few nights, six weeks after it happened. We both met him. He told us that he had been a friend of the dead man, Frank Paris, and he had asked us a lot of questions about the murder. He talked to our staff as well. We had absolutely no idea that he was going to turn the whole thing into an entertainment. If he'd been honest with us, we might have been more circumspect. Which was exactly the reason he wasn't honest with you, I thought. You never read the book, I said. We forgot all about it, Lawrence admitted. And Mr. Conway certainly never sent us a copy. He paused. But Cicely read it, and she found something that cast new light on what had happened in, at Branlow Hall. At least that's what she believed. And just as a side note, Cicely is their daughter. He glanced at his wife as if seeking her approbation. Pauline and I have both read the book and we can't see any connection. There are similarities, Pauline said. Firstly, nearly all the characters are recognizable, clearly based on people that Mr. Conway met in Woodbridge. They even have the same names or very similar ones. But what I don't understand is that he seems to have taken pleasure in twisting people so that they come out like horrible caricatures of themselves. The owners of the Moonflower, which is the hotel in the book, are clearly based on Lawrence and myself, for example, but they're both crooks. Why would he do that? We've never done anything dishonest in our lives. She seemed more indignant than upset. The way she was looking at me, it was almost as if I was to blame. In answer to your question, we had no idea the book had been published, she went on. I don't read murder mysteries myself. Neither of us does. Sajid Khan told us that Mr. Conway is no longer alive. Maybe that's just as well, because if he were, we might be very tempted to take legal action. So let me get this straight, I said. I had the sense of facts tumbling on top of each other, yet I knew there was something they hadn't told me. You believe that maybe despite all the evidence, not to mention the confession, Stefan Kadrescu did not kill Frank Paris, and that Alan Conway came to the hotel and discovered in a matter of days, who the real killer was. He then somehow identified that person in Atticus Pond takes the case. Exactly. 
But that makes no sense at all, Pauline. If he knew the killer and there was an innocent man in prison, surely Allen would have gone straight to the police. Why would he turn it into a work of fiction? That's precisely why we're here, Susan. From what Sajid Khan told us, you knew Alan Conway better than anyone. You edited the book. If there is something in there, I can't think of anyone more likely to find it. Wait a minute. Suddenly I knew what was missing. This all started when your daughter spotted something and Atticus Pond takes a case. Was she the only one who read it before she sent it to you? I don't know. But what was it she saw? Why didn't you just call her and ask her what she meant? It was Lawrence Trahern who answered my question. Of course we called her, he said. We both read the book, and then we rang her several times from France. Finally, we got through to Aiden, and he told us what had happened. He paused. It seems that our daughter has disappeared. I hope I did Anthony proud <laughs> with my reading. It was great. Yeah. It's really great that you put on a smoking jacket and sat in a big leather chair by a roaring fireplace as you did that. That looks so cool, Chris. <laughs> hey, I'm a character reader. I like to really get into it. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and anything else before we bid them adieu? Uh, that for sure stands out as one of the coolest interviews based solely on everything that came out of his mouth. I mean, it was, it was lovely. It was really, it was energizing. Like you said, Lainey, it was energizing to listen to him. Mm -hmm. It was refreshing. Really cool. He's, he's a wellspring of insight and knowledge and passion and just all good things. So I very much look forward to better days ahead when we might be able to see him in person. I know many librarians probably feel the same. Hope to see him stateside. But in the meantime, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Just watching the interview. He's fantastic. Unforgettable. So with that, we wish you well. We hope everybody's doing well and staying safe out there and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.